0: Hello,
1: and thank you for joining this episode of Global Perspectives, a podcast created to share insights from our investment professionals and the implications they have for investors. I'm your host for the day, Laura Castleton, and today we're digging into one of the sectors that's most closely tied to our lives, healthcare. To do this, I'm joined by Andy Acker and Dan Lyons, portfolio managers on our healthcare and biotech strategies, each with over 25 years of experience. Gentlemen, thank you for joining.
0: Good to be here. Thanks.
1: So, healthcare is one of those sectors that is really tied and personal to each and every one of us, but it's also a sector that has some of the most divergent characteristics in terms of defensiveness and offensive upside. So, I want to dig a little more into the themes of healthcare today and give our listeners just some of the expectations in terms of opportunities and expectations going forward. I think to start, we have to talk about biopharma. There was a lot of investor enthusiasm surrounding that sector after the pandemic. So, Andy, Bradley, what's the sector been up to since in terms of R and D?
0: Well, it hasn't been sitting still. <laughs> um, let's remember what happened three and a half years ago when the COVID nineteen pandemic hit. So back then, it you know if we think about his history, it used to take ten years to develop a new vaccine and the fastest ever was four years. Now, fortunately for the world, the pharma industry had advanced well beyond that. And using new mRNA technology, we were able to develop two highly successful vaccines in about 10 months instead of 10 years. And that meant that and these these vaccines were 90 over 90 percent effective, so that probably saved millions of lives. Since then, we've made further advances in mRNA technology, but we're also making advances in other gigantic unmet medical needs. Think about obesity. You know, obesity has been in the news recently, but we now have therapies that are dramatically more effective than ones that we used to use maybe just 10, 15 years ago. We're now getting injectable therapies that are one a week that can give 15, even 20% weight loss. And that was you know, really unprecedented, and these drugs are fairly safe. And they're also improving diabetes as well. So for diabetes and obesity, these new therapies called GLP-1 therapies, drugs like Wegovy, Ozempic, Manjaro, these are game-changers now. And there was a big question also about if you could get this kind of weight loss, would that also actually improve outcomes, cardiovascular outcomes like heart attack and stroke and ultimately death? And we now know the answer is yes. In fact, just recently, we had new data that showed that you could actually cut the risk of those events by 20% by improving weight loss. So this is a big breakthrough. Let's think about dementia affects over 50 million people worldwide. Unfortunately, as we get older, our probability of getting dementia continues to increase. And until recently, we've had no therapies that could modify the disease. Again, now we have new therapies that are antibodies that can go into the brain and actually remove the plaque that is thought to be the main cause of Alzheimer's disease. The first of these was just approved this year, and we have a second one coming in the coming months. And these therapies now are the first disease-modifying therapies that are proven in clinical studies to slow the progression of disease that can slow the loss of cognition that's inherent to this disease. So areas like dementia, Alzheimer's disease, obesity, diabetes, these are areas that are huge unmet medical needs that are now being revolutionized by new therapies. So this is just some of what's happening in the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah,
1: that's already sounding like a lot and can generate a lot of enthusiasm already. Dan, is there anything else that you're seeing from your end?
0: Yeah, I would just emphasize,
2: uh, building off of Andy's points, um, you know, we've seen a, a whole range of new modalities uh, coming through the industry in terms of ways that, that they can tackle different diseases and, you know, things like gene therapies where you can specifically go after the missing gene or cell-based therapies, where companies are able to retrain the immune system to fight cancer. But building off of what Andy talked about with mRNA as a platform, we've actually seen that being potentially useful now for infectious diseases more broadly. And the industry is working on combined flu, RSV, all the respiratory viral diseases that plague us every fall. And what the industry is using this platform now is a a versatile way of tackling these diseases by by basically having a single shot where you could get a vaccine against not only COVID, but also flu and RSV. And these are in, in various stages of clinical development right now, but the mRNA platform could allow uh, the industry to do a better job of harnessing exactly the right um, antigen such such that the the efficacy of things like flu vaccines could improve and we'll find out if this works out over the coming years, but it's an example of how new modality can really uh, broaden out the effectiveness of therapies for 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 the industry
0: yeah and when you think about you know what did COVID bring forward? You know, what what's where are we going to advance further because of COVID? I also think about diagnostics because when we think about respiratory disease, you know, we all know that we get sick, but we don't know what's causing it. Is it a bacteria? Is it a virus? Which type of virus? We now have point of care testing that has been rolled out around the country and around the world that can tell you, you know, when you're sick, do you have COVID? Do you have RSV? Do you have flu? So wouldn't it be better if we could, you know, Know, get a more accurate assessment of what's actually causing your sickness and you could get direct point-of-care testing find out in the next 10-15 minutes you know which virus you have you could get vaccines that could cover many of these different respiratory diseases every year you know we could all be a lot healthier our kids could go to school more often and have fewer sick days you know that would be great you know for all of society I think
1: I mean as someone with two young kids, also a fear of needles. All of this is sounding good to me personally. A lot of innovation within the sector in general, a lot of excitement. And biopharma historically has just been, it has been one of the more defensive ballasts within the healthcare sector. It is not without its headwinds. So there is some concerns, namely around pricing. We saw the Inflation Reduction Act in 2022 get priced. That raised some concerns initially. So as we think about some of the headwinds, Dan, what do you think in terms of pricing? Is that actually a concern for biopharma and what are the implications from the IRA?
2: Yeah, <clears throat> I would start off the question with just a, a broad uh, broad thought that, you know, in general, whenever we see real innovation in the industry across many different pricing systems around the world, uh, innovation is is paid for ultimately. So I think that's the most important thing to keep in mind. Going specifically after the IRA, however, we did recently see the first list of, of drugs that are going to be subject to negotiation by the government, which will start in 2026 to come out. Now, everyone had been anticipating this for many years because it had been known that this was going to happen. And what this basically did was kind of just highlight uh, drugs that are already going to be going off patent or face generic or biosimilar competition. So in terms of a change in uh, the industry's fundamentals, it didn't really didn't really change that. And in fact, when the first list of drugs subject to negotiation came out, the stocks didn't really react very much because it was widely anticipated. And I, the, the legislation basically anticipates roughly a nine to 13 year life cycle for new therapies. And while that could be longer, you, we would certainly argue, it does somewhat coincide with the normal patent life cycle. And uh, as a result, opens the way for new innovative therapies to gain reimbursement in, in the healthcare system. So we think that
0: overall the IRA effects are quite manageable for the industry. and I think you know the the drug price negotiation aspect of the IRA is something that you know is very high in the mind of investors. I think the part of the bill that's less appreciated is this element of reducing the copays that individuals have to pay in the United States and our Medicare system for the elderly. Today, there is really no limit on how much a patient could have to pay out of pocket for therapies, even if they're life-saving therapies. So if we think about an oral cancer drug, for example, sometimes patients are being asked to pay as much as five or $10,000 out of pocket per year for life-saving therapy. That that should never happen. You know, Many people can't afford that. Today, one-third of prescriptions are not filled at the pharmacy because of the cost of the copays. So it's not necessarily the price of the drugs that is the issue, it's our current reimbursement system that puts a high burden on the individual patient. And the bill actually does start to address that for Medicare individuals, it limits the amount of -of out-of-pocket costs for these therapies to no more than $2,000 per year, no matter how many therapies they're on. That's actually a big benefit for patients that can improve access and may actually increase demand for pharmaceuticals you know that's an element that we thought was really positive in the bill that that maybe is not as well appreciated the other element is whenever i hear about you know there's a lot of innovative new therapies and people worry about the cost of them and can the system afford all these new medicines you know and i think the part that's less appreciated again is that these pro- these products are essentially on a treadmill Because today we're spending billions or tens of billions or hundreds of billions on old innovation, you know, products that were developed and brought to market 10, 12, sometimes even 15 years ago. And what is not as well appreciated is as those products start to lose their patents and face generic competition or biosimilar competition, the price comes down dramatically, sometimes by 90% or more. And so we're now getting essentially a rebate of billions or even tens of billions of dollars every year from the old products that we're not paying for anymore. So this year, recently, Humira, which had been the biggest drug in the United States, selling over $16 billion the year is now facing biosimilar competition where the price has come down in some cases by 80% or more. So the system is saving billions and billions of dollars on old therapies, which it can then reinvest in newer, more innovative therapies addressing high unmet medical needs. And that's an underappreciated aspect of the system that has been happening for the last 30 years. So for the last 30 years, the percentage of healthcare spending from new medicines has actually not changed. It's been around 18 to 20% for the last 30 years, despite the fact that we have all these new therapies coming out today that are addressing high unmet medical needs. And in fact, just in the last five years, we've had almost 250 new medicines approved in the United States, which is up about 100% from the number of new therapies that were coming, you know, 10, 15 years ago. So we have a lot more new therapies. Many of these are revolutionary products addressing high unmet medical needs. And yet the total spending on medicines hasn't really changed.
1: Right. So maybe some misconceptions there in terms of worries about pricing. And the big biopharma names, and then you know regulation. Dan already touched a little bit in terms of regulation surrounding the IRA, but there's also regulation, of course, with the FTC. So we did see earlier in the year the FTC contested one of the largest bio proposed biopharma mergers. What impact did that have, and do you see any concerns on FTC regulation going forward?
2: Yeah. So um, uh, early in the year, uh, there was there was a contest to the Amgen Horizon merger which was a, a large biopharma merger. And that may have put a damper a bit on large uh, M&A in the, in the sector. More recently, we've actually seen that, that dropped and uh, that merger is likely to go through. So I think a long lasting impact of that probably will be pretty minimal. However, even in, in, that, in that backdrop, year to date, we've seen an unprecedented level of M&A activity for the sector with more than a dozen buyouts that were more than a billion in, in, uh, in total. Uh, spending by the by the pharma companies and within that backdrop it just highlights the need that large pharma companies have for innovation and typically they get about two-thirds of their innovation from small and mid-cap biotech companies and this is where where we think a lot of the innovation in the sector is and will be going forward so that's that's why we we, we see still a very
0: positive backdrop for a continued a within the sector yeah, and M and M&A, I think has been a theme in almost you know how the industry works because as Dan mentioned, you know sixty five percent of the medicines that reach the market today were initially developed by small and mid cap biotech companies, and sixty five percent of the pipeline today is being developed by small and mid cap biotech companies. So it's the smaller companies that are bringing the new innovation in many cases. And then you have the major pharmaceutical companies that need that innovation to offset their patent expiration so that they can continue to grow. So we've seen for many, many years the cycle of bigger companies buying smaller companies, buying that innovation to continue to grow. And I think... The FTC challenge uh, of the Amgen-Horizon merger, I, I think, initially raised some questions, but that's been resolved very quickly in favor of allowing these kind of deals to continue to happen. So we think that will continue, and it's it's been very beneficial for us. These acquisitions will typically happen at a 50 to 100% premium or even more, and hopefully we can continue to find those kind of companies that have real innovation that's of interest to the bigger companies. Right. And I, I should have also uh, mentioned that, you know, the
2: large pharma companies have more than $500 billion of, of kind of cash and firepower that they can use to deploy in this M&A. So we see a lot, a lot of uh, M&A going forward as well.
1: Okay. And that's a great transition actually to, we talk biopharma being one of the more stable ballasts within the healthcare sector to biotech, which is one of the major growth engines through the amount of innovation within that subsector. So that's a good transition, Dan, to biotech. It Biotech did have one of its worst drawdowns on record in 2021 and 2022. It has since come back, but it hasn't had that full recovery yet. What do you think will be required to have that turnaround? And just broadly, what opportunities are you seeing within the biotech subsector today?
2: Yeah, that's a great point. And, and people often lose the view of what ha- the innovation is happening within biotech when they look at the broader indices which as to your point have have suffered and went through a significant drawdown recently. What we've seen in the sector though is really quite a contrast between the what we call the haves, which are companies that have shown really dramatic innovation and have been able to, you know, raise enough capital to to develop programs going forward versus the have-nots. During 2020 we saw a lot of uh, new biotech company formation, in many cases companies that weren't didn't really have a plan, didn't really have a pipeline. And those companies, not surprisingly, have languished within the markets. And that's, we think, what's leading to a lot of the, the broader index selling off. I think just highlights the, the very high importance of uh, an actively managed strategy, which can basically harness and find uh, the, the haves within the sector that are delivering on, on innovation. And, and I guess the last thing I would just highlight, you know, within this, com- this uh, class of haves within the sector, they have access to a, a wide range of new modalities. I mentioned a few of them earlier, you know, cell and gene therapies is one example, but as the industry develops new platforms, they're better able to, to, to meet unmet medical needs and find new therapies. And that's, that's what we think is really driving a lot of the, uh, the benefits uh, in the innovative haves
0: within the sector. Yeah, when when we think about the biotech sector broadly, you know, I think it it you have to remember what we call the 90-90 rule, right? And the fact that 90% of drugs that begin human clinical testing will never make it all the way to market. And as Dan mentioned, a lot of companies got funded in the excitement of 2020 because the industry was on the front lines of fighting COVID-19 with a lot of success, there was a view broadly that just everything was going to work and be that exciting. And, and unfortunately, that's not how it works in biotech, but that's really why we have a, a job and a role and a career because you it, to find the companies that will be successful is extremely challenging, but it's not impossible. And There is incredible innovation in the sector like nothing we've ever seen. You know, a lot of the advances today would have seemed like science fiction maybe 10 years ago, but you need a team that can really dig down and understand both the science and the business. Virtually every member of our therapeutics team have a PhD or an MD, and you really have to understand the details behind the science that's driving these therapies. But the ones that are successful can generate unbelievable, you know, value. And so there are these success stories in this industry that can be unlike almost any other industry. And again, it's not easy, but when you can be more often right than wrong in terms of identifying these really innovative companies that can generate a lot of value for shareholders really in any economic environment.
1: Great. Right. And so I think just to tie this all up for our investors, let's just go to where we're at today and just highlight again the case for healthcare in general. So off the backs of what you were just mentioning, we do know the b- growth potential within biotech, but just what's the case for healthcare, biotech and other subsectors in general in today's environment?
0: Yeah, so I think we have to first of all think about where are we in terms of the economy right now and the market overall? We came into 2023 with an expectation that we were going to have a recession. And then that didn't happen. And then they were got, we got a lot of excitement about these advances in AI, which are extremely exciting. And I think there's a consensus view that's built up now that we're going to have a soft landing. So we've seen inflation start to slow and the markets perform very well. And there's a view generally, I think, that Maybe we're going to avoid a recession. Not only that, but, you know, the odds of recession are very low. And yet we still think there are these pressures on the economy that are very real, but take time to play out. And they just haven't fully played out yet. So if we think about the inverted yield curve, which almost always predicts a recession correctly, it's only been since November. So it hasn't even been a year. And typically that impact takes one to two years. We've had the fastest increase in interest rates since the 30s and yet they've only been at a high level for a few months you know and and again that takes one to two years we have quantitative tightening we have you know literally trillions coming out of money supply that's also the impact of that it takes time to be felt and finally we have banks lending that is slowing substantially and again that takes time so all of these impacts take time to work their way through the economy and we believe they're really going to hit more in 2024 than 2023 and the economy can actually perform quite well right up until it hits a wall as we saw during the global financial crisis now the expectation for earnings broadly in the market are for double-digit growth in 2024 and that is not at all consistent with the potential for a recession so we think there's real risk to the overall markets. Meanwhile, we have healthcare, which this year has been hit by what I would call the pandemic hangover, because we had billions of sales for vaccines and treatments and diagnostics for the pandemic, which have really come down substantially this year because we had an end to the public health crisis. So those products have come down, that's weighed on earnings for healthcare this year, but we've now sort of reset to a lower level and we think healthcare can grow broadly even during a, a recession. I and mean, that's typically what we see, that healthcare demand holds up much better during an economic slowdown and a recession. So we think healthcare, which is trades at a discount to the market and risk to earnings for the broader market, you know, really put healthcare in a very good position on a relative basis in terms of the defensive characteristics of the sector and the lower valuations, but at the same time we have this increased innovation which we think is not being appreciated. And if we think about, you know, we talked about 250 drugs approved over the last 5 years, this year could actually be a record for new products being approved. We could have as many as 80 new medicines approved in 2023. And what's important about that is that drives growth for the industry, not just for the next couple of years, but typically the product cycle lasts for a decade or longer. And so whether it's new therapies for Alzheimer's, obesity, diabetes, cancer, NASH or fatty liver disease, there's all of these new therapies being addressed, addressing high unmet medical needs that we think will drive growth for the sector for years and even decades that we think currently is not being appreciated. So we see, while there's sort of worries about drug pricing and worries about regulation, we see a sector that's been sort of left behind this year. And we think the setup going forward is actually quite attractive.
1: That's great. And we talk, our team talks all the time about how. It is very difficult to predict exactly where the market's heading and so factoring in everything that's going on within the economy the attractiveness within healthcare it makes a ton of sense what you just laid out in terms of the opportunities of investing in that sector today also just because the themes are very investable and attractive to end users whether it's population growth or aging demographics stand so as you just think about the implementation of your team just how do you think about investing themes within your strategies
2: yeah, that's a, that's a good point, and you know, you bring up uh, the aging demographics, which is is a broad reason that people always think of owning healthcare. And, and Andy mentioned, you know, some other other key factors to keep in mind, which uh, which are obviously front and center. You know, one being, you know, innovation that we're always looking for to harness the, these massive new growth markets that are are, are just going to unfold as these products are are uh, are, are getting FDA approval and, and launching in, in in the coming years and the really attractive valuations of the sector. But you know, in, in terms of how we take advantage of, of healthcare more broadly, we really focus on both the science and, and the business. And when we're looking for true innovation within healthcare, we're looking for products that can change the practice of medicine. And it's those products that are, are likely to become the next blockbuster therapies that are in this ramp of new products that uh, Andy mentioned, the 80 new drugs receiving FDA approval over the coming year. So that's, that's really our, our fishing ground, I guess, and you know it's not easy because we always have to keep in, in mind the 90-90 rule where you know there's only 10% of these therapies that are going to make it through. But by really focusing on uh, the underlying science, does it make sense, and then thinking through the various aspects of clinical development for new therapies, we think that we can do a good job of finding these innovative therapies, and that's what gets us ultimately really excited about the healthcare sector overall going forward.
0: And just to clarify this, the second part of the 90 rule mm-hmm. refers to the commercial expectations. And what we found in more than 24 years of investing in healthcare is the consensus expectations for a new product launch are wrong 90% of the time. So first you have only... You know, 90% of the drugs will never make it. And then for the ones that make it, expectations from Wall Street are wrong 90% of the time. So what we try to do, we're not going to be perfect, but we try to just be more accurate than the market at finding the companies that have underappreciated clinical and commercial potential. And what we found is that can drive value really in any market environment over the long term.
1: Well, Dan, Andy, thank you so much for being here today to talk about such an interesting sector We hope our listeners today got a better understanding of some of the investment implications behind some of the different subsectors, namely how healthcare offers this great balance of offense and defense in such an uncertain environment, and how a well-diversified and active approach can be really additive to investors today. For more information and insights from Janice Henderson, feel free to download other episodes of Global Perspectives, including a recent one from your colleague, Louis, who talked about more in-depth on just um, the obesity, drugs, and the innovation behind that sector you can also visit our website at janicehenderson.com i'm your host for the day laura castleton thanks see you next time
3: The views presented are as of date published, they are for information purposes only and should not be used or construed as investment, legal or tax advice or as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any security, investment strategy or market sector. Nothing in this material shall be deemed to be a direct or indirect provision of investment management services specific to any client requirements. Opinions and examples are meant as an illustration of broader themes, but not an indication of trading intent, are subject to change and may not reflect the views of others in the organization. It is not intended to indicate or imply that any illustration or example mentioned is now or was ever held in any portfolio. No forecasts can be guaranteed and there is no guarantee that the information supplied is complete or timely, nor are there any warranties with regard to the results obtained from its use. Janice Henderson Investors is the source of data unless otherwise indicated, and has reasonable belief to rely on information and data source from third parties. Past performance does not predict future returns. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal and fluctuation of value. Not all products or services are available in all jurisdictions. This material or information contained in it may be restricted by law, may not be reproduced or referred to without express written permission or used in any jurisdiction or circumstance in which its use would be unlawful. Janus Henderson is not responsible for any unlawful distribution of this material to any third parties in whole or in part. The contents of this material have not been approved or endorsed by any regulatory agency. Janus Henderson Investors is the name under which investment products and services are provided by the entities identified in the following jurisdictions: A Europe by Janus Henderson Investors International Limited, registration number 3594615, Janus Henderson Investors UK Limited, registration number 906355, Janus Henderson Fund Management UK Limited, registration number 2678531, Henderson Equity Partners Limited. Registration number 2606646, each registered in England and Wales at 201 Bishopthake, London EC2M3AE and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and Janice Henderson Investors Europe SA. Registration number B22848, at 2 Rue de Bitburg, L1273, Luxembourg and regulated by the Commission de Surveillance du Secteur Financier b. The U.S. by SEC Registered Investment Advisors that are subsidiaries of Janus Henderson Group PLC, c. Canada through Janus Henderson Investors US LLC only to institutional investors in certain jurisdictions, d. Singapore by Janus Henderson Investors, Singapore, Limited, Company Registration No. 199700782 n. This advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by Monetary Authority of Singapore, e. Hong Kong by Janus Henderson Investors, Hong Kong Ltd. This material has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. F. South Korea by Janice Henderson Investors, Singapore. Limited only to qualified professional investors, is defined in the Financial Investment Services and Capital Market Act and its sub-regulations. G. Japan by Janice Henderson Investors, Japan. Limited, regulated by Financial Services Agency and registered as a financial instruments firm conducting investment management business, investment advisory and agency business and type 2 financial instrument business. H. Australia and New Zealand by Janice Henderson Investors, Australia. Limited, ABN 47124279518 and its related bodies corporate including Janice Henderson Investors, Australia, Institutional Funds Management Limited, ABN 16165119531, AFSL 444266, and Janice Henderson Investors, Australia, Funds Management Limited, ABN 43164177244, AFSL 444268, I, the Middle East by Janice Henderson Investors International Limited, regulated by the Dubai Financial Services Authority as a representative office. This material relates to a financial product which is not subject to any form of regulation or approval by the Dubai Financial Services Authority, DFSA. The DFSA has no responsibility for reviewing or verifying any prospectus or other documents in connection with this financial product. Accordingly, the DFSA has not approved this material or any other associated materials nor taken any steps to verify the information set out in this material, and has no responsibility for it. The financial product to which this material relates may be illiquid and or subject to restrictions on its resale. Prospective purchasers should conduct their own due diligence on the financial product. If you do not understand the contents of this material you should consult an authorized financial advisor. No transactions will be concluded in the Middle East and any inquiries should be made to Janice Henderson. We may record telephone calls for our mutual protection, to improve customer service and for regulatory record-keeping purposes. Outside of the US, Australia, Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Europe, and UK, for use only by institutional, professional, qualified and sophisticated investors, qualified distributors, wholesale investors and wholesale clients is defined by the applicable jurisdiction. Not for public viewing or distribution. Marketing communication. Healthcare industries are subject to government regulation and reimbursement rates, as well as government approval of products and services, which could have a significant effect on price and availability, and can be significantly affected by rapid obsolescence and patent expirations. An index is unmanaged and not available for direct investment. Actively managed portfolios may fail to produce the intended results. No investment strategy can ensure a profit or eliminate the risk of loss. A yield curve plots the yields, interest rate, of bonds with equal credit quality but differing maturity dates. Typically bonds with longer maturities have high yields. An inverted yield curve occurs when short-term yields are higher than long-term yields. Quantitative tightening, QT, is a government monetary policy occasionally used to decrease the money supply by either selling government securities or letting them mature and removing them from its cash balances. Diversification neither assures a profit nor eliminates the risk of experiencing investment losses. Active and passive investments may both lose value when valuations fall and market and economic conditions change. Janus Henderson, Knowledge Labs, and Knowledge Shared, are trademarks of Janus Henderson Group PLC or one of its subsidiaries. Copyright Janice Henderson Group PLC. c 923 31525 tl